Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We love to spend time in the word with you. We know that we need the spirit. I really need the spirit to help in this text. Um, We've prepared and studied, but we know that the spirit takes the deep things of God and presses them upon our hearts so we understand them, Lord, and we apply them. Lord, I'm so grateful to think about our church on a Wednesday night, how many people come out, how many children are down the halls being taught theology and theory and music and working on Christmas stuff. Our young people, our student ministry is packed and many kids in there getting taught truth, Lord. Adults, young and old here gather as we sit around the word of God here today. Lord, we are blessed and we thank you for what you're doing here, Lord. Father, continue to use us if it is your will to bring more to us. May we be good stewards, may we be kind and friendly, but may we also certainly always be known as people who love your word, exalt Christ, and may you draw many to yourself. Lord, bless this time now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 24. I know I've been taking a little bit of bigger chunks, but Exodus 24 is a very important passage and one we just want to look at this text this morning alone. Next time we'll take on quite a few as we go through the, uh, the instructions for the tabernacle and so forth. But this is a very important passage, and one of the reasons is, is because the Bible is so fun to study because you begin to understand this progressive revelation. All through the Bible, God is pointing towards something, particularly the Old Testament, all pointing towards something that's coming. Of course, it starts in the garden there with the fall of man and the promise of the seed and and a promise of blessing and and so forth and and as you work your way through the bible if you watch and you and you keep your eyes on Christ and the cross everything is working that direction and this passage is a phenomenal text to help us understand the redemptive plan of god and how we will see the gospel and as i teach through this here's some instructions and you might write this down so you don't get lost in the Old Testament narrative as, as much as I want you to think about the gospel. There's so many things I'm going to say here that are happening in this text, but I want you to connect it to the gospel. I want you to connect it to the cross. I want you to connect it to the finished work of Christ. And I'm going to help you do that tonight, but I want you to be thinking that way. And so this is a little bit of an exercise to help you as you study your Bible. Many of you read through the Bible or you read an Old Testament passage that you will be able to look at that passage and say, wow, this seems to be pointing to even a greater work. And we're going to see a lot of that in today's text. Now, chapter 24 brings us to the completion of what I call the inauguration of the covenant. The covenant's being unveiled to them. It started in Exodus 19. There Moses began to give them instruction that he was given from God. Now, Moses has received greater detail regarding the commandments and and the promises of God. And, and, And that opportunity is now being given to him to share to the congregation, the nation of Israel, but there's a ratification of this covenant that's coming in this text. God's going to ratify this with a view of the future. And so they'll have a solemn ceremony here, you'll see in this. They'll have a sacred meal together. All this is part of this covenant that God is handing down to them, but is pointing to something greater. Now, you remember in Exodus 19, verse 8, there, the people of Israel gave like a preliminary, 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 got my tongue working here tonight, um, acceptance to what God was given. 
You remember there they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, right? They didn't want to get close to God. They were still afraid. It was a blazing you know, mountaintop, and they were very nervous to be around God. They wanted Moses to do the interceding, interceding and, the, and be the mediator between them. But they said there in that preliminary acceptance, all that the Lord has spoken, 19.8, we will do. Now, you'll see in this chapter, Exodus chapter 24, verse 3 and 7, there's a final acceptance. And they will accept this covenant that God has put in front of them And they will say very similar things twice in this text. We'll get to that in a minute. Next, what you'll see in this text is uh, those who represent the people. Uh, There's a group of 70 elders. Uh, They're a pre-law, priest type of men. And they're representing the nation as they go before God. And they have the privilege of actually being in the audience of God. It's a fascinating text. It's one that some people will try to catch you on, and I'm going to help you through that because they'll say, well, nobody's ever seen God. And then they say this text, and they're, they're going to try to fool you a little bit on But I'm going to help explain that tonight, what, that, what really took place there. But these representatives of the people, they are going to have the privilege to stand before God where God, who cannot be seen, right, permits them in some way. So we'll look at that. But then Moses, who is the covenant, the old covenant mediator here, he's going to be summoned up even to a further up the mountain, and he's going to be given great instruction for 40 days and 40 nights, and he will be worshiping the Lord. However, as we look at this, and this is what I want to charge you with at the beginning, there's a much greater view here in the new covenant, in the New Testament regarding the new covenant. And I want you to watch for that as we go through. It's all pointing to something greater. And I believe this is a a preview to the final covenant that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it too will be ratified just like this with blood, but it'll be ratified by Christ. So we'll we'll get into that in a minute. Let's look at number one here, the mediator in in a meeting with God, verses one and two. The mediator in a meeting with God. Remember I told you, as we were starting in this part of Exodus, I said Moses is up and down the mountain so many times. If you go back and count, it's, I, I've actually lost track of how many times it was. He goes up and down the mountain like a mountain climber. And here he is doing this again. Chapter 24, verse 1, Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and, the 70, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Well, here's the scene. It remains very similar to what it's been in the preceding passages. Moses is going up and down the mountain. He is speaking with God in the midst of this thick black cloud that has come down, at least from their view, on Mount Sinai. But in chapter 4, there's 24 here, there's a new session. There's, there's a new section going on where God is divinely instructing Moses to bring the leaders near to him. You notice that in verse 1. He, he wants them come up to the Lord. And he gives a list of people he wants there. You, Moses, Aaron, who will be the head of the priest, uh, priestly tribe and all the men that will follow him. Uh, Nadab and Abihu are his sons. And then these 70 elders that really uh, function as pre-priest, uh, pre-law priest before God. Now, notice that Moses 
special position as covenant mediator is acknowledged. You can see, Moses, I want you to come up, but I want you to bring with these people. The other men are to accompany Moses. Moses is the key figure. He is the one that's mediating. And he's set apart for this. And you're going to see him with his associates. But listen, as you look at this, remember, Moses is a type of Christ, particularly in verse uh, chapter 24 here. Now, it's important to recognize that there still remains this gulf between God and man. I think sometimes when we read this, you're going to see that there's a sweet relationship between God and the nation for just a short time here. You see this happen. But there is a gulf between God and man. In fact, this great chasm, it'll remain there till what happens? Till Christ's death and what? The veil is torn. But God has provided a way for man to be close to him, at least temporarily. And this is what we're seeing here. But it's, look, it's looking forward to something greater. Now, God desires Moses to bring Aaron and his two sons and these 70 men um, up the hill with them. And this was done first because it shows God's intention to have what I believe a priesthood of believers, a priesthood of men who follow God, who have the right to come in to his sanctuary. So this is the first time anybody other than Moses now has been introduced into the presence of God. And so you can see what he's about ready to develop. I'm saying some words that have New Testament meaning to them, don't they? Priesthood of believers. So there's something pointing forward even in now. Now, secondly, it looks, it looks to the future that this role of the priesthood will be under the new covenant, and, and God is going to show how the priesthood, the believer priest, can now walk into the presence of God, not only just for a short time as we see in the old covenant, but forever. Look at verse 2 with me again. He says, Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Well, here we are reminded that those who represent the people were permitted to pass now. This, this group is permitted to pass through the fence. Remember, they made a barrier to keep people from the mountain of God, lest he strike them. They now, now have permission to go past the fence where it was surrounded around the mountain and come closer to God. However, even for them, there are restrictions for them to reobserve here. The elders are permitted to worship God from a distance. They're still holding back. Only Moses, this type, is, is uh, able or allowed to get into the presence of God, to go further up the mountain. Within the cloud, um, so when the Bible says here, within this cloud, and so remember this represents the glory of God, his majesty, his power and lightning. We see all that things happening. It represents that God there is present. Now, under the old covenant, only the mediator is allowed, right? And we'll see this as time goes on. If the priesthood is developed, one, Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, one day a year, um, the high priest, only one man, one time a year, is able to go in behind that veil and offer sacrifices. And right now, God is displaying that. The rest of the priesthood have to stay outside, but yet one can go in, and that one is Moses at this time. Now, second thought this, this evening. The covenant administered by the mediator. The covenant administered by the mediator. Look at verse 3 with me here as we start to focus in now on Moses. Then Moses came and recounted to, all the, to the people all the words the Lord and 
and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So what's happening here is Moses has come down now, and you have to kind of stay up with this coming down and where who he's talking to to understand how many times he goes up the mountains. But here he's come down from the Mount Sinai, and he's gathered the people together, and he's told them what God has said, chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22. And this has been the instruction of these last chapters. But notice this. As you can clearly see, after Moses gives instruction, the nation, and and I love this little phrase here in verse 2, excuse me, verse 3, with one voice, with one voice, notice that. So so there is clearly here um, a picture of complete harmony, and and they're, they're accepting the requirements the Lord has put on them with with unity. One voice, will we will do these things. Now look at verse 4 with me. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12, disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. Now here the Bible says that Moses wrote down all these words, and I think this is the second reference, if I remember right. I think the other one's in, in chapter 17, verse 14, where it says that Moses is writing this stuff down. I think that's fascinating because it provides us an understanding that the Pentateuch is being written. Now, there is some evidence that a lot of stuff is filled in later when they're in the desert wandering around there that that Moses is recording a lot of the the narrative that's going into this. But he he seems to be writing these things down. And he is, the, he is the covenant mediator between him and God. And probably since leaving Egypt, he has used papyrus and scrolls and ink. And he's been writing these documents down. And here the Bible says that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And so if you run into people who say, well, you know, where did this come from? Here's a great text. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. It's, it, it teaches us about inspiration and the Bible is God's word. But notice the latter part of verse 4. It says, Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, we remember that altars were always a form of worship with God's people. And, and you have to go all the way back to Genesis 8, somewhere probably about verse 20, where we see the very first altar built, and it was built by Noah. But here's something that you begin to see. Altars could exist without a temple, but no temple could exist without an altar. So that's what's coming now. So the next thing that God is going to do is he's going to give Moses this instruction. You'll see that in the coming chapters here, that how he wants the temple built, it is going to, in some way, reflect a heavenly temple in an earthly way. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verse 24 through 26, told us that God had already given the details of how an altar would be built. Remember, he didn't want cut stones. He did not want polished stones like the Canaanites. And, and we talked about that quite a bit. They, these stones, this, this altar that he's building here outside the camp was to be made of natural in a natural setting. Just grab these things and put them together. He did not want something that they would begin to worship. But this is the first time that he begins to talk about the pillars of the tribes of Israel. And this is where we begin to see the tribes start to truly be established. Later, we'll see that as the temple is built and they begin to move through the wilderness, he will position the 12 tribes around the temple, uh, around the Levites as they carry the temple. And then once they settle, he'll put those tribes in certain spots around the temple 
and secure it that way. It's a fascinating way of laying out his people. Now, look at verse 5 with me. He sent young men to the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed, uh, sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Well, these young men were probably the firstborn. They were probably firstborn young men of the nation of Israel. And they were there to assist these pre-law priests um, here as they made these sacrifices. And presumably they went and they selected these young bulls according to the words that God has given them, that they were to be um, unblemished animals and so forth. And they selected these as part of that ceremony. But notice they were to offer it to the Lord. And really, if you look at the text, it says, as a peace offering to the Lord. So what they're trying to figure out is, are we at peace with the Lord? Let's offer, before we go up this mountain, because the Lord's wanting us to come up, we're going to offer this peace offering, and is the Lord going to accept us? Is he going to take us up or take us out? <laughs> in a sense, they're asking, God, are we at peace with you? Now, that's a very important question, because if you're in the 12 tribes of Israel, and you're down there, and that hill is just on fire and glowing up there, and now you're part of the 70 guys where Moses says, hey, you, you, you are coming with me. <laughs> You better know you're right with God when you get into his presence. And you can see how this is starting to unpack and you're starting to think about how we get into the presence of God. How Jesus Christ was our peace offering. And we don't have to think or worry now because Romans 5.1 says that we are at peace with God. Those who have been justified through the finished work of Christ are at peace with God. And so the Lord has now done that. But in this day, they're, they're doing this offering to make sure that they're at peace with God because they're going up that mountain that's on fire. And so you can see their hearts beating here and as they try to approach a holy God. We'll look at verses 6 through 8 um, and notice that the attention turns back to Moses. And it marks a, a sequence of actions that begin to happen here uh, around this one verb, this Hebrew verb for took here. Notice verse 6. Moses took half of the blood. Uh, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant. Verse 8. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it. So you're starting to see a pattern here. And in verse 6, um, Moses took the blood and he put it in a basin. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So Moses now reserves half the blood of the animal to offer in a sacrifice used Later in verse 8, you'll see that. So he sets that half of that aside. Now, there's a twofold application of the blood. Um, one is pointing to the side of the nature of the covenant. There's, there has to be something that appeases me, something that covers sin. And so it's a bond between the Lord and his people. So this blood was able to cause people to come into the presence of God here. Now, the first half of the blood would, was sprinkled on the altar, and, and you'll see this throughout the Old Testament, particularly on the Day of Atonement. They would come in, and they would dip their hands in that blood, and they would throw that blood across the altar, and there, seeking the peace of God with a blood sacrifice that would cover or cause remission of sins, at least temporarily in the Old Testament. And again, it points to the Lord's acceptance of the offering. And his gracious forgiveness, their blood is, is, is tied to forgiveness. And, and so this first half of this offering is, Lord, will you, will you forgive us? As, uh, this animal has died in our place. This is what's beginning to be taught to them. But Moses, notice that Moses did not immediately 
proceed to sprinkle the blood on the people. Look what happens in verse 7. So not only has he now put the blood on this altar that has been built there just at the foot of the mountain, most likely. Before he starts to throw the blood on the people, he's, he's first come to God, offered blood sacrifice before God. Here's blood to, to make sure we're at peace with you. But then he says, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, here we go again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Some new terms added into this. Now, the book of the covenant was what Moses had been writing. He's what he's been writing down these last chapters, right? And this is necessary teaching. This, this, this was a necessary teaching. So the people knew what they were agreeing to. It was vitally important that the people were informed of the terms of this covenant with God. So before he turns to them to, to spread the blood over them and show that they are cleansed, at least temporarily, he first says, here's what you said all that is written, we will do. So he reminds him. So it is not a, a blind commitment of some sort. The nation of Israel just going to say, well, whatever, you know, we're just going to go along with this. It seems to be the, the thing to do. They, they were made to understand what was happening so that they would voluntarily say, yes, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And then notice that last phrase, we will be obedient. Now, I want to just make a note here because we are, there are some comparisons that are happening with the new covenant, but we want to be careful that we're not adding to the finished work of Christ. When we, when we share the gospel with somebody, we would say, you know, through Jesus Christ, you can have your sins forgiven. They, all of your sins, past, present, and future. But what we don't say on top of that is, well, also you're, you can't eat this and you can't do that. And you can't go with this girl or go with those with you or however that saying goes. We give a bunch of lists of that. So that I want to make sure you're not doing that because we find, we find all of what Christ has done. We stand in all of his finished work, not our finished work. But with that said, how many people have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and never follow him? So so when we get to the new covenant, we begin to understand that Christ has ratified that covenant for us. He has cleansed us. And those who are truly saved now have a spirit of God who, who have the fruit of the spirit within us, who desire to love, who desire to have joy and patience and peace and kindness and, and, and self-control and, and all that serving of the Lord. In fact, Christ is our example. He didn't come to be served. He, he came to serve. And so we follow that. And that's one of the reasons that we know something radically has happened in our life. But we're careful um, as we share the gospel. I would, I, I would, our, our whole goal when we share the gospel with somebody and someone professes faith, as we said Sunday, Jesus told the disciples that you can tell them their sins are forgiven. If they don't repent, you can say that they'll die in their sins. But if they believe that Jesus has forgiven them and their sins are, you should tell them that. And then we start the discipleship process, don't we? We want them to know who Jesus is, and then obedience comes. But when we look at this, when we look at this old covenant, this is the only way in which the Lord's people can live in fellowship with him, by completely accepting the terms that are set out. And they said to this, we will do this. So, so the blood is put there to appease the wrath of God. The, the standard is set. Here's how you need to live. Here's the Ten Commandments and all the uh, subsequent laws that come with them. Do you agree to this? And they say, yes, we will. 
Now, I got thinking about this, though, and I said, you know, I wrote this in my notes. It is obedience to this requirement that leads to blessing. They are going to be in the presence of God and not fear him and have peace with him if they obey him. But when I thought about the gospel, I also thought about it this way. It is obedience to the gospel, putting my faith in Jesus Christ alone, that brings blessing. If I come to God and say, I believe in you that you sent your son and he died for me. However, I want to give you a few tidbits of things that I have done as well. Then we don't receive salvation. See, salvation is by Christ alone. And there's part of this in me that I begin to see here that God has set a standard of belief. And and that's true for us to this day. We have a standard that we believe that Jesus Christ was enough, he accomplished everything he said he did, and we put our faith in that, and that controls our obedience. Does that make sense? Where here, they now rehearse the truths that are given to them. They outwardly say, I will. This, you know, this is partly connected to what we believe in lordship salvation. We believe that Christ is our Lord. And the good works that we do have been prepared in advance and actually are part are partly given for us to know that God has changed our lives. So someone who says, oh, I'm a believer, someone says, oh, I'm a believer, and yet never walks with the Lord, never desires the things of God, can you assure that person that they know Christ? See, see, it's a rejection of the finished work of Christ, that the power of God to change a life. And so when I look at this, I go, certainly we don't ratify some covenant by doing all these lists of things that God has given us. But you know what we do do? We believe in Jesus. We believe he's worth following. We believe he's worth dying for, to lay down our lives and follow our Savior. And I know that's a growing process in us. We, as we came saved, probably all didn't get up and go, yeah, I believe, you know, take up your cross and follow Christ. We may not have all understood that at that time, but as you grew, you started taking up that cross more and more, didn't you? And you begin to die to self, and you begin to let things go in your life that were not glorifying to the Lord, and you begin to follow him. Now, praise God that the ratification of the covenant was all done in Christ, but we are a result of that. And when I study this, I see men like Moses and others who put their faith completely in God. And it motivates them just like we are motivated by the gospel today. Now look at verse 8. So Moses then, after he's had them, he read the covenant to them, and they make this agreement, this pledge about this covenant. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, what is significant about this part of the ritual here is the joint application of the blood of the altar, put on the altar, and the people here. So the blood of the sacrifices sets the people apart as Lord's, Lord's holy people. So he, blood is put on the altar, it appeases the wrath of God, it's a, it's a temporary demonstration of the forgiveness of sin, but yet that blood is also cast over the people, and there is this group now that is called God's holy people. Now the problem, this had to be done year after year um, because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin permanently. 
Now, the realization of this promise is in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, and it says, you will become how does it say? You will become to me a kingdom of priests. So this is never going to be completely fulfilled till the new covenant. And that's where what the Lord does with us. Now, let me just, before I end this point, I want to kind of take you in a little deeper here in some ways. When you think about what this blood foreshadows, this great offering of this greater mediator, okay? So Here's Moses, he's throwing the blood on the altar, he's throwing the blood on the people, he's read this, this covenant with them. He's the lesser mediator. Now think about the greater mediator, and that's what brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the greater mediator. In the greater, the greater new covenant solidifies our eternity. So, so when you think about Jesus, Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, somewhere in there, he's at the, he's at the table before, um, the night before his death, he's with his disciples, and listen to the choice words that he uses. He goes, this is my blood of the covenant. Now before that, it was always the blood of bulls and goats and something else that could never take away sin, Hebrew says. So that night before his death, as, he's, as this covenant with God for us, all those who would believe, is going to get ratified by Jesus Christ, he tells them, look, there's a new thing coming. The blood of the bulls and goats and all that that held back, as Romans said, it held back the wrath of God, is going to be replaced with my blood. And so that night, before his disciples, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the blood of the bulls and goats held off and, and truly did forgive them temporarily because they would sin again and need another um, blood sacrifice for that each and every year. That was going to come to an end. And so it's fascinating to kind of see where this was going and how it's fulfilled in the greater covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you, I think we just got done going through Mark and the, and the death of Christ and of course the resurrection and all of that. But when you start thinking about that night before his death and then him on the cross, he is ratifying a new covenant that will never come to an end. Hebrews says he had to fulfill the first one. So he had to, he had to be the perfect lamb that can fulfill that one in order to usher in the second, the greater of the covenants. And so it makes you think, man, he's hanging on that cross and you're going, boy, I'm sure glad Jesus is on there dying for my sins. Yeah, that's great. He's ratifying a covenant forever for you. And his blood, and we'll see here in a little bit, he's going to go right into the very presence of God with his own blood and said, will this do for Scott, for his past, present, and future sins? Will this cover him for eternity? And God will accept it. Ratified, new covenant. And never Never will blood have to enter the presence of God again because Christ is enough. So you see, all this is pointing towards a greater, greater mediator, a greater covenant. And it's all laid out in the Old Testament. All for us to see as it watches it fulfilled in Christ. Now, I gotta get going. Three, an audience with the king of the covenant. This is fascinating. Um, I get excited about this stuff because they're, they're gonna walk into the presence of God here. So the final stage of this covenant ratification ceremony that's taking place here was the representatives of the people are permitted as an audience to this covenant king, right in the presence of God, in some sense here. 
In chapter 19, the people were banned. They weren't allowed to come up, to, to come up the mountain. They're, they're held off. In fact, they didn't even want to come up the mountain. They were scared of God. But now God is permitting this, this group that represents of these 70 men, these Aaron and his sons, all represent nation Israel. He's going to let them come up into his presence in this next passage here. And in chapter 19 and 20, God, God presents himself with darkness and lightning. And people are going, look, I don't want to be a part of that. Now he's calling them up. And we'll see here just in a moment this view of God that's now going to be described in this scene as peaceful and majestic. <laughs> it's different because it's coming, it's following on the heels of coming to me through this ratified covenant. Now, temporary as it would be, it's a picture of something looking forward. Look at verse 9 with me. And then Moses said to Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. Now, Moses is now presenting, um, I, I think he's really presenting himself as one of them now. He's been the mediator, but now he kind of steps into, I'm just like everyone else, I need to be presented before God. And here he is, uh, not so much in that role of covenant mediator, but he's, he's one going, Lord, Lord, I need this as well. So, so I think the Lord puts him in a setting where he comes with these men as one. Now look at verse um, 10 with me, the beginning of And they saw the God of Israel. So Aaron, uh, Moses, Aaron, his two sons, and the 70 elders, um, they don't go to the peak of the mountain, but they seem to go partway up the mountain, and there, there, notice it says they saw the God of Israel. Now, I think it's noteworthy that the text carefully, carefully avoids saying anything about the appearance of God and actually focuses on the surroundings around him. Now, somebody will say, oh, Titus says no one has seen God live. John 1 says no one has seen God live. But here's a passage that says they saw God, and they'll attack you on this. Well, just study the context. Study the text. Does it say they actually saw God? It actually doesn't. It's, it's, it's actually, I, I don't believe they actually saw any direct perception of deity in, in any any way that you and I would probably say, oh yeah, there's God, he's tall and handsome and gray-haired and so forth. They actually see the things that surround him. But God is privileged to let them in. I think, again, this is a remarkable theophany that's recorded with very restrained language here. Because nobody does see God and live. And John 4, 24 says what? God is spirit. So what happens here is unique. Look at the end of verse 10, the second part of verse 10. And under his feet, there appeared to be like pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Now, notice the verse doesn't say, you know, this tall, stately, gray-haired man. It doesn't say anything about him. It actually talks about the surroundings. And listen, I thought about this. Is it possible? I think this is kind of how I would approach it. Is it possible that this group that is representing the people here who who come and they're overcome with the glory of God, that their heads are actually down. And what they see is what is at the feet of the Lord. I don't know. This is just my personal thoughts here. But, this, but there's something amazing that they see just what's at the feet, of the, the feet of this theophany, right? And it could be the pre-incarnate Christ. We know that he often is how God manifests himself in the Old Testament. But it's extraordinary is he sees this pavement like none other. Remember, they're thinking pavement to them was dried mud into bricks and set together with sand in between, and that made their roads, right? Well, that's not what they saw here. Notice what they see. 
they see something extremely clear, the Bible says. It is a deep blue of sapphire, meaning that it was pure as the sky um, in, in its most bright, brilliant time. We've ever been in the high country where there's absolutely no pollution and no clouds and the sun is blazing as, as bright as it can without any obstruction. There's a blueness there that's, that's phenomenal, isn't it? And so the idea is here that there's no imperfections. And, and actually the Hebrew word for clear is the same word we get for cleanse or, or at least a root word to cleanse. And so it's, it's without any impurities. It has no impurities in it. And it reflects this bright and clear sky here. And the, and the whole scene is, is a, a very appropriate view of the vast extent of the rule of the of a heavenly king just you know, unbelievable layouts as far as probably the eye can see of this crystal clear glass sea, as the Bible would say. I think it's just a little glimpse of heaven. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 is very much along the line. It says, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass. Very, very similar, isn't it? consistency within the scriptures of what we will see in heaven someday. You know what, you, and I know as a little boy or a grown up kind of looking at that and go, okay, not sure what I'm going to do with that, but that's cool. What it's trying to teach us is the, the sinlessness of God, the sinlessness of God where God resides and, and, and a beauty that's almost beyond what we can probably pin words to. This is where our Lord resides in full control of all things. But notice verse 11, he says, Yet he did not, and this is, this is amazing, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and drank. After all the precautions of not coming near the mountain, fenced off, don't go up the mountain. <laughs> After all of that, now they approach him. And you would think, I, I can't help but think these 70 men, and probably Moses included at some level, had some kind of dreadful fear of consequences of being in this presence. But yeah, that's not what they see. It's a peaceful scene. And remember, these men are still sinful men in the presence of God, but under the blood covenant, under the blood covenant, these sinful men, these pre-coming priests right here, they could come into the presence of the Lord because the covenant of blood had shown they were forgiven, though it's temporary in the Old Testament. It's teaching us something, isn't it? That if you're covered by the blood of Christ, you will come in the presence of God with no fear. You will see his beauty and his grandeur like no, no, before, never, ever you could ever imagine. And you will be safe and secure in his presence. For us, that's forever. For this is a temporary, I'm going to show you what's going to happen in the future. Isn't that beautiful? Now, notice they said it, they saw God and they ate and drank. Well, I think this describes God's people taking part in a meal of a covenant fellowship. When offerings were made, part of the animal was given back to the one who made the offering right. They sacrificed a portion of it, and the other portion went back to the family, and they ate it. And what that did is it represented to the people who made those sacrifices to the nation of Israel that for momentarily, God was pleased with you, and he wanted to share a meal with you. You want to go to the Lord's table now with me? When we take the Lord's table and remember our Lord Jesus Christ that he bodily died for us and he bled for the remission of our sins, we fellowship with God in a spectacular way. 
We are not there to do penance, as I've said so many times. We are there to be in awe and overwhelmed that Christ brought us into this covenant, new covenant position through his body and his blood. And we now symbolically share a meal with God in remembrance of his son's work. Isn't that fascinating right here in Exodus 24? It's all pointing towards a greater meal, a greater sacrifice, a greater mediator, a greater covenant. I know we're swimming in the deep end here a little bit. I hope you're hanging on. But there's fun stuff here, isn't this? As you think about how the Bible is always pushing forward to the greater work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I got thinking around with this. I got to be really careful. I just want to mention a few things here. But the ceremony of the gathering and the eating with God anticipates the banquet of Isaiah 25. Have you read Isaiah 25 lately? If you haven't, you should. That has to be in the future because that's never taken place. It, it's, it teaches us also, it anticipates the, the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26 that I just talked about. It also anticipates the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelations chapter 19. And, and, and look, this passage is temporary. I don't know how long, this long, how long this meal lasted, but it wasn't very long. And it certainly wasn't forever. But you and I, we will come in under the blood covering of the Lord Jesus Christ, completely forgiven for eternity. And our meals and fellowship with God will never come to an end because of what he has done. Oh my goodness, isn't that fun? All this marks the privilege extended to those who are living in a harmonious relationship with God, coming to God God's way. This is what this marks. Those who want to come in another way or will be separated, not just temporarily, but forever. There's always another side to that. It is in this meeting that the people of God are shown just a glimpse of final blessing. These, remember, these 70 men represent the nation. For a moment, they got a glimpse of what eternity would be like. But because the old covenant was leading to something greater, they had to go back down the hill. You know, they tell you when you get old, you went over the hill. I'm telling you, you're going to go up this hill and never come down. That's what happens when you die. That's what happens when the Lord comes and gets us. We will go up that hill and we'll never come back. And we will fellowship with him forever. Look at the last few verses. Number four, the mediator ascends into the glory of God. Here it appears that after this theophany and the meal, Moses seems to accompany the men back down the camp. Any other way of reading it doesn't quite make any sense. And so here he goes back down, and, and it was at some point later that verse 12 takes place. So look at verse 12 with me. Now, now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written on for their instructions. Well, of course, this is a reference to the original Ten Commandments. Um, this is tablets written on both sides. We'll see this when we get to this uh, a little further on. But these are the tablets that, um, that Moses broke. Because remember, we're going to look what Moses is doing up on the hill. Well, there's a whole other deal going on down the hill. This is what he's talking about here. There's idolatry is going to come into play um, down the base of the hill, but not with Moses. He is there to hear God's word, see the law written on these tablets. Now, these commands were designed to teach the people and give them instruction how they can live at peace with God, how they can come into his presence and be with him and enjoy his blessing. And so this is 
of course, his law written to them that would be fulfilled in Christ um, and ratified by his blood so we can have that eternally. Now, look at verses 13 and 14. So Moses also, excuse me, Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, wait here. This is why we know they're down. Wait here for us to return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let them approach them. Let, let him approach them. So Joshua um, is probably accompanying Moses up this hill, um, at least part way. I don't think Joshua goes all the way up. It doesn't seem that way. And Moses seems to know he's going to be on the mountain for some time, right? And so he starts setting all these commands. He tells these elders, you're going to oversee these things. And, and Aaron's got the camp and the care of the nation. All that's happening down there in her. Uh, and, and, and so he's communicating, look, I've got to go up. God's summoned me up there. I'm going, we're not going to be going anywhere soon. So start kind of make sure law's happening. Take care of justice. You know, see if there's any problems. Make sure these things are taken care of. Because I've got to go talk to God. Look at 15 and 16. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. So it seems like God appoints this to happen, and this cloud comes back down. The presence of God rests on this mountain. Verse 16, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, it called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. So he called to, called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. After Moses makes this appropriate arrangements here for his absence, the narrative continues, right? And again, this cloud represents the glory of God. It settles down and it rests. And I like this word rest. I chased this down for just a moment today as I was finishing this. It rested, or your Bible might say dwelt or settled in there. It's the same root word we get Shekinah from. So you start to understand this denotes this very visible presence of God in his glory is now resting back on that hill. Now, it says it, that for six days that Moses waited. And he probably waited there with his young apprentice, Joshua. And it's neat that Joshua was there to see that because he's, again, going to lead the nation eventually um, it, before God calls him up. And there's, I, I read quite a bit about that. Um, thinking through, my first thought was creation. Why six days? And the seventh day he called him up. There's some thoughts there that maybe you could kick around with me just a little bit. And, and, and maybe, this is just my thoughts here, maybe he is taking the time to say, I am putting effort into this covenant and the things that I want to write down to you so that you'll know the way to me. And what he's doing, when he goes up there, you're going to, all the temple and the holy of holies and the holy place and all the surroundings of how God will dwell among them. And so there might be some things there. I wouldn't push that one too far. Look at verse 17 with me. And to the eyes of the son of sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountain. <laughs> so Moses does not give a description. You notice that he's up in the middle of this. He doesn't give a description, but notice it says the scene is from the camp. They look up and they see the illumination from within this cloud um, and it was not dim, it was, it was radiant and active. And, and the nation looks up at Sinai, Sinai there, and, they, and they're well aware of what's going on. This was divine, this is not ordinary event, something's happening. And then verse 18, Moses enters the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And this kind of picks up the narrative from verse 16. And so Moses ascends right into that cloud, um, 
He has been waiting this six days, and, and now he walks into the presence of God. As Moses is given the rest of the commands and the stone tablets and the instructions on the tabernacle, but downstairs, things aren't going well. Let me just close with this last thought. I want to take you to the New Testament and see if I can really drive this truth home with you. Um, the greater mediator and our eternal fellowship with God when you study this really beautiful experience in this chapter, it, it truly helps you anticipate the new covenant. For us, we're able to look back and say, wow, this had to happen every year. You know, priest went in and, and they remember the Day of Atonement, they took the blood of two goats and the one they would slaughter there and take that blood into the altar, another one they would lead away. And, and there was just this constant killing and blood sacrifices to atone for sin and hold that off. But when you study this, you begin to see there's something greater here, as we've mentioned. And it establishes that Jesus Christ is going to do something for, for the coming age, the, the age is that coming, and, and there's truly a heaven there, and you can start to see all that in there. And this old covenant that the Israelites were sprinkled with, this blood, is significant. The Lord used, talks about blood and remissions of sin and so forth. But it's a new covenant that really opens the door to this. Look at Hebrews 9, and we'll end here tonight with this. Hebrews chapter 9. And I want to get your finger in this text. It was a beautiful day. I mean, they, they spent time with God. They saw God in some way or another. They had a meal there. Um, they were at peace with God. They're, they saw some amazing things, but it was just temporary. It was just temporary. There was something greater that was to come. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. We'll start in verse 11. He's talked about this very similar thing, the shedding of blood and the symbols and the offering of sacrifices, verse 9. Everything was related to food and drink and various washings and all these things have to happen. But verse 11 strong, starts with a strong conjunction. But when Christ appeared. Now here comes the solution to the problem of this, well, how long is this going to take place? How we have to do this over and over and constant cleansing, constantly hoping that we're at peace with God, hoping we've done right. Remember, they, even some of our history tells us that they tied ropes on, on the high priest because it would be struck dead going into the Holy of Holies and they'd have to drag their bodies out. I mean, when is this going to end? In verse 11 is it, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, something greater is coming. Notice he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's the book of hebrews there's a greater tabernacle there's a greater mediator there's a greater christ right there's a greater sent one the messiah all of that is recorded in here notice that he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands moses is on the top of the mountain we're going to come back he's on the mountain he's getting the instructions of of how the walls are going to be built and what what goes where and where the furniture is and how it's placed and how you're going to come in and how you're going to come and go and who can go there and who can't go there all that's going to get placed get talked get written out for moses but here there's a greater one and this one's not made with hands and so it's a picture of heaven it's a picture of the holy of holies where god resides it's not of this creation. In verse 12, look, it reminds us, and not through the blood of goats and calves. This had been the process for thousands of years. Goats and calves, endless trails of blood have been done to hold off the wrath of God, but through his own blood. Now that's what he said the night before his death. My blood 
will ratify this. So the writer of Hebrews, whoever this is, picks this up and says, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. Now, why is that eternal redemption so important? Because it wasn't eternal before, was it? It was yearly at best. Because God could strike you dead because man was constantly a sinner, right? And so here now God, Jesus Christ comes right into the presence of the most holy of holy. He's bringing his own blood before God. Notice he enters the holy place once for all. I've said this so many times. He doesn't look like, well, it's 2020, October. Hmm, Scott's really messing up. I'm going to go down and do this again. Well, that's what the Old Testament's about. That's what the Old Covenant was about. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. None of that was perfect to satisfy God, but Christ is. And then look at verse 13, how beautiful this is. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, uh, those who had been defiled, uh, defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of their flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ if that actually worked, in chapter, in verse 13, did work. It did hold off the wrath of God. Uh, he, uh, Romans 3 uses a, a, a Greek word that, talk, it, that we get the word, uh, a word for a dam, that it holds back the wrath of God. It did. It held back till Christ could come. And so, yeah, in, in a way, it did work temporarily each year. But then he says, this writer of Hebrews says, but how much more will the blood of Christ Blood of Christ compared to an animal. How much more is that? Who, through the eternal spirit, see the terms that are using? Not temporarily anymore. It's all eternal redemption, eternal spirit. Offer himself without blemish to God. Here's the work of the blood, his blood. Cleanse your conscience. (laughs) When we're saved, it's not only our sins are cleansed, our consciences are cleansed. And boy, doesn't the apostle Paul pick up on this, doesn't he? killer of the church, right? At least is handed in some way, calling himself a violent aggressor. He uses the term, my conscience is clear. Look, all of us have done things in our life, thought things, been sinful in ways we would ever hate to get out of these little brains of ours, wouldn't we? And I don't want to dismiss sin easily, but as Christians, our sins are forgiven. And if that doesn't motivate you to strive with the help of the Spirit not to sin anymore, you're probably not in the faith. If you're just stuck in a constant repetition of sin over sin over sin over and can't get out of it, because maybe it's because you've never truly experienced the forgiveness, the powerful work of Christ. That's why there's a progressive growth in our life. Because we don't understand all these things at the time of salvation, but as more we grow and understand this great covenant work he's done on our behalf, we grow. And so we have confidence in those things that Christ did this and we can live for him. Notice it says at the end of 14, cleansing your conscience from dead works. Now, isn't that interesting? How many dead works still happen in churches around the world? Chill trying to appease God in some way deep knee bends and crossing yourself and offering this or giving offerings or whatever else, trying to somehow appease God. Those are dead works, brothers and sisters. That's why Christ plus anything is nothing, right? 
Christ plus anything will land you in hell for eternity. What a motivation for us to live for the Lord Jesus, isn't it? And notice, cleanse from dead works. And then look at this. That's what I was talking about. This is why we believe in some understanding of lordship salvation, right? To serve the living God. To serve him. He didn't save us to leave us in our sin. He saved us that we'd be continuing to grow in the image of his son more and more daily. There's a progressive growth in that as we grow. Fully saved, fully positioned in God. Die today, have all the glories of the Lord. But while we're on this earth, he continues to mold us and shape us and cause us to be more like his son. That's security. If I wasn't growing and loving the word more, and you know, you, you did this many years in the ministry, I told Brian, said, how was your study? I said, it was phenomenal. I don't know if I can get it all out tonight, but I mean, just mind-blowing as I sat at my desk and realized the connection over and over again of what he was doing in the Old Testament looking forward. And I hope you've been encouraged today and you go away and go, God's pretty awesome, isn't he? That's a mark of saved people. And said, man, I want to live for him. Fine, I've got to wrap this up. Verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Thanks, Moses. Man, you did a great job. Praise the Lord for Moses. But Moses wasn't great enough. <laughs> and Moses knew it. Moses died on a mountain. There was a greater one that came. One that you could do that Moses couldn't. Moses' life was pointing towards a greater mediator. He is the mediator of the new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption, that blood on the altar, something had to die to get that blood on that altar. This time it's Christ's death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed against the first covenant. That's, that's us. The wage of sin is death. The law exposes us as sinners, doesn't it? You go look into the righteous law. You stare into that and see what you get back. Ugh. Thank the Lord. And so he, he took care of the first covenant. He came to fulfill it, right? Those who have been called may receive the promise, and here it goes again, of eternal inheritance. Everything from the Old, the old Testament is, is temporary right now, right now. Do this right now. Obey right now. Do all this. The New Testament all, New Covenant all talks about our future eternal position with the Lord, that we have it all right now with it all in front of us as well. Well, good stuff. I'm late. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, I should have probably done such a better job. It's overwhelming to come up against your word and its perfection. And to think deeply really about our whole entire Bible today to see that redemptive plan, to see that even in these dim shadows of Exodus 24, we can see where we can be right with God. There's a blood sacrifice for us. Blood that's pure, that appeased your wrath, Lord. It allows us to come into your presence holy and cleansed, our garments washed white, standing with you for eternity. There, there's, there's a dim view, Lord, of, of what's coming, of being in your presence eternally, worshiping and feasting and fellowshipping with you, God, because of what your son has done. Lord, we're not going to go back down the mountain anymore. 
And Lord, whether we die in this life by death of just physical life right now, we will never see the second death. And that means we'll never go back down that hill. And so, Lord, if you just choose to take one of us home who are true believers in this room or hearing this, we will be with you. We'll go up that hill and never come back. And so, Lord, I pray you'd give us confidence to trust you, Lord, to believe you, to believe in your finished work, to to commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're worth walking with, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would etch that upon our hearts, Lord. We would be encouragement to the saints, other people. Lord, we would lovingly speak truth and love to one another. If there is corrections that need to be made in our lives, that a dear brother or sister would come and we would hear that, Lord, because we don't want to live in sin. We want to turn from those things. We want to have a clear conscience, Lord, and walk with you and serve you. So, Lord, we thank you for Exodus 24. We thank you for a glimpse in that passage. But we now know much fuller, Lord. And someday we'll even know to to an eternal extent as we stand in your presence and feast with you, Lord, and fellowship with you. Lord, it, it makes it hard to stay here, Lord. When we look at this, we long, we long to be with you, but yet you have jobs for us. You have prepared good works in advance. Right in the middle of Campaign Central 2020, you have good works for the Christians at Riverbend. Lord, may we find those. May we desire to serve you in those ways, Lord, so you'll be glorified. Thank you for all the ministries that are taking place around this building today, to all those who are working with our children and youth. Lord, please bless them. Bless these parents that are in here, Lord. Give them strength to keep pointing their children toward Christ. Help them to teach the new covenant to them. The great, beautiful work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I give you all the praise and glory for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.